Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This whole week off is all wide open, you know. Going to come, going to come see you today, and then go to Weatherford. And I, I booked my week so solid. I, I had a call at ten, a call at one, your call at three thirty. Then I got a meeting tonight at six, and I got down. I was half hour late getting off my last call, and I'm thinking, man, I got, I got to be on at three for some reason. I, thank God for you. I had it in my head at three, or I'd be late because I always am. Oh, we'll try not to keep you too long today. CK won't be joining no, us. That's she's, all right. She's stuck in Texas visiting the lovely Birdwell and Clark Ranch today. Emery Birdwell Ooh. and Emery Clark. Yeah. So, Jealous. I, yeah, it's probably a little warmer down there. I don't know how cold it was over probably. in Severy this morning. It was brutal. We were we were promised forty degrees and sunshine today, and we're not going to hit thirty, and we're cloudy, and it even spit a couple times. Wind wind chills in the teens. It's nothing close to what they forecast. Oh, we got, uh, they were saying maybe we'd get an inch of snow and it ended up being a little over two. So I'm not going to complain about that. I mean, moisture's moisture's yeah. moisture, never cuss a rain or a baby calf. No, nope. yeah, I, I would have taken the moisture. I, I guess I saw a, something somewhere this afternoon that there was a band of, of snow from eastern Colorado through central Kansas. It was 20 to 30 inches. Yeah, like out there in western Kansas, there are a couple of places. I think somewhere I saw it got like 27 inches of snow. I mean, yeah. not that we don't need the moisture, but we don't need that much snow. <laughs> That's a little excessive. No, and, and, and it, I understood that it was kind of unforecasted. So, I, you know, 27 inches of snow is one thing, but when you don't know it's coming, that, that makes it a little tough on you and me. I think the most I saw in forecast was like maybe something around six, maybe eight inches and in, yeah. Wow. A little less than ideal to have 27 to deal with. <laughs> yeah. I, I could sure use 27 inches of snow, but I, I'm not sure how I would deal with it for the first week. Is it getting a little dry over there? Days or whatever. Yeah, we're, we're really dry. We, we've had nothing recorded in January. We had three tents with that big storm in December, zero in November, zero in September. And I think zero in July. Oh, wow. So, yeah, your drought's definitely starting yep. to soak in there. Yep. But we, we did have good rains in August and October, which is a little odd, but take what we can get when we can get it. Kind of the nature of the business. So, uh, yep, it certainly is. So, for our listeners here, why don't you tell us, uh, tell us what your business is? Uh, my business is growing food for my customers, providing clean air, clean water, and high nutrition. Awesome. So what's, what's the name of this business? 
the farm name is Fuller Farms, and we market our, our products, which is grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork, chicken, duck, eggs. It's all marketed under the label Circle 7 LLC. Okay. Great. And, uh, and where are you located at? Uh, the farm is at Severy, Kansas, on the very eastern edge of the beautiful scenic Flint Hills. Okay. I guess I should have looked at a map and uh, got a little more familiar with Severy is, but you're you're almost straight east of me. Literally straight east, one hour of Wichita. So yeah, probably almost literally straight east of you. Pretty pretty close. Good deal. And you said you had ducks. I didn't know you guys were doing ducks. Are you, is that uh, meat ducks or duck eggs? We're doing meat ducks. It was a bit of an accident, uh, but we've got them. And it's not, it's not uh, a major enterprise. It's more of kind of a holiday break from having lamb, pork, chicken, and beef all the time. So we, we raise them seasonally just to have around the holidays to market. And we enjoy having them around. It's like I said, it's, it's certainly not a huge enterprise. At any given time, there's somewhere between five and 100 ducks running around. Interesting. Very interesting. Maybe we'll circle back in here and talk a little bit more about that later. But first, I want to I want to hear the story of Gail. Like I, I know some. I've been hearing your name for years, and I one of these days I've got to get over for one of your field days because it looks like you guys just have an enormous, an enormously good time. So, tell us. Uh, how did you get your start in agriculture? What, what was your education, upbringing, and uh, start in agriculture like? Uh, my, my upbringing was I, I grew up on what was probably a pretty typical family farm in eastern Kansas in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I'm 59 years old, so I'm class of 62 model. Uh, you know, growing up, we, we had a lot of cropland. We had six, seven different crops in our rotation. We had cows. Our main enterprise was pigs. The farm had some chickens. Our grandparents lived on the farm in a separate residence, you know, three gardens. Uh, I, I just thought it was pretty typical growing up. We looked like a lot of our neighbors, maybe different enterprises. That was the, the cool thing about the community, you know, in the 60s and 70s was, uh, you know, we had neighbors growing blackberries. We had neighbors growing pheasant. We had neighbors in the dairy business. We, you know, the community was growing a little bit of everything, which was which was really cool. Um, so that that's how I grew up. Pretty conventional farm. Uh, I, I graduated high school in 1981, and between my ADHD, which really hindered my my schooling, my public schooling. Uh, I really didn't have any desire to go to college, and they probably didn't want me either. Uh, and besides, you know, I, I kept thinking, well, my dad's a farmer. Why do I need to spend thousands of dollars to go to K-State to learn how to farm? So uh, that was my course of action. Uh, obviously, well, I, I rented my first piece of land in 1979 as a 4-H project, bought my first farm in 1982, first 40 acres. You know, anybody that's my age is probably wincing right now at, you know, <laughs> some guy buying his first piece of land in the early 80s at, 16% interest. It, it wasn't pretty and it, it got pretty ugly for a while. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> How? Uh, go ahead. No, go on. Well, my, you know, I think the 80s was obviously a defining decade, you know, maybe compared to the Dust Bowl, the two defining decades of the 20th century for agriculture. Sadly, both pretty ugly decades. The 70s was a fabulous decade. 
I, I can still remember on January 1st, 1980, uh, except for our 3020, which every farmer at that time had a 3020 or a 4020, um, except for our 3020, every piece of equipment on the farm is less than two years old. You know, our dad's biggest issue every year was December. Could he spend enough money to avoid paying all those taxes? So, you know, it, it was roaring times. And then the 80s hit. Uh, fortunately for us, my dad was a substitute mail carrier and he got an opportunity to go full time in the early 80s. And that's probably the only reason we survived it. You know, I, you know, sorry to say, I wish I'd, you know, I'd like to say we survived it by being really good farmers and really smart. But uh, those, that decade was so tough. It just, it wiped out anybody that didn't have means of making income elsewhere, us included. Oh, Mike Calicrates talked a little bit about that before and oh, several other guests that have been in the business for almost as long or about as long as you have. I've kind of talked about what a tough decade the 80s was. What made it so tough and why were things so good in the 70s? Do you, do you have anything to say about that? You know, it's just it's going to be my opinion on the 70s because I was literally a kid. So I'm not paying a whole lot of attention, except it was fun driving new equipment. Uh, <laughs> it is you know, fun driving new stuff. <laughs> it is fun driving new stuff. You know, Earl Butts obviously had a big role in it, uh, you know, with with the feed the world farm fence row to fence row farmers become specialists and lose the diversity. And, you know, I can remember dad and, and the, the crew talking about that, about, you know, we needed more acres and uh, you know, the farm grew pretty rapidly through the late seventies. Uh, it was just, it was pretty easy farming markets were good. So it, it wasn't that hard to make money. You know, it, farming's never easy, but that, that was about as easy as it could get, I think. And then the eighties hit, you know, we, we blamed Jimmy Carter at the time with the, with the embargo with Russia and the wheat. But really looking back, that was really just the last nail in the coffin. You know, high interest rates, you know, everything just kind of flipped on us overnight from 79 to 80, 81. And it got, it got really tough really fast. And, you know, I can still remember, I, you know, I graduated high school in 81, started farming got married in 83, you know, I'm trying to buy ground, buy cattle. By 1985, uh, I think it was in December of 85, at the end of the year, the bank told us make money next year or start off, start liquidating. Uh, had my first child born in 86. My, we lost our main, main barn to a fire in 86. My brother had brain tumor in 86. Plus the fact that, you know, we were forced to make money in 86. And it, it was just, you know, what a difficult year and, and what the stress brings to you of, of you know, that we certainly know today watching this meltdown in the economy today and the stress and the depression and things that come with it that, that get to you sooner or later. Tell me it got better in 87. It, it did. We, we got, I, I, you know, a little bit lucky. We, we played our cards right through 86, even with all the, the, the personal trauma we had. And in 87, we got really lucky. We, the eighties had been also fairly dry and, and some, the stars kind of aligned for us in 87. And we had a decent year when, when other farms didn't, and we were able to get our head back above water and, and, you know, made it into the nineties somehow. Hey, so what were you growing on the farm around that time frame, like late eighties? Uh, by the, by the mid late eighties. So my brother went to college. He, he was smarter than me. He got home 
from college in 86, I think it was. And we'd tried farming together with me and him and dad. And, and we all got along fine, but we had too many chiefs and not enough Indians. And so about that time, we divided the farm up. My brother took over all the grass and hayland. I took over all the row crop. We still shared equipment and labor and all that. Uh, by that time, you know, I'm, I'm running all the row crop. We're, we're growing corn, soybeans. We've still got some silage and some alfalfa in the operation. Uh, wheat was basically gone. Milo was on its way out. Milo and wheat were both on their way out. You know, by the time, by the time my farm peaked in the year 2000, I was down to Roundup Ready Corn and Soybeans. The cows had even been kicked off the grass and kicked off the farm ground. They were confined to a feedlot, which, you know, in the 80s, we were still grazing stocks and grazing some pastures and things like that. So in 2000, it, it sounds like it looks like pretty much most of the rest of the typical production conventional ag operations around. A lot of green machinery, a lot of iron, a couple of pickups full of tools, a lot of debt. Yep. A, lot of, a, a lot of green machinery, a lot of debt, a lot of rented land. We were following the model, you know, become specialists. We, we got rid of all of the crops. We could, once I switched to no-till, we were told the cows had to go. So we, we sold the cows or I sold the cows. And yep, we, we were farming with the bank by that time, full, full blown. How many acres were you guys farming then? Uh, by, by the year 2000, I'd grown the grain side of the operation to 3,200 acres. Um, I have no clue what my brother had at that time, but I'm guessing he was well over 2,000 acres of grass. And when I say grass, it was all hay. Our, our family's in the hay business. We're not in the grazing business. So those were all pastures or hay meadows. Pastures have been converted to hay meadows. So, Okay. So that sounds like it's way different from what you're doing now, which we'll get back into. <laughs> so take us through 2000 to 2010. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny because in 2000, when you look back between my brother and I, we, we had to be the, the two biggest haters of carbon in Kansas. <laughs> you know, we're, we're hauling all of the grass to Western Kansas to the feedlots. My, my, my rotation was corn and soybeans. My two largest landowners at the time were both feedlots and the corn was all being chopped for silage. And so, you know, we're hauling off any ounce of carbon we can find, which it's sad. It's, it, I'm laughing about it today, but the sad part was, you know, for me personally, you know, in the year 2000, I'm what, I'm, I'm 38 years old now. I had no clue what the carbon cycle, mineral cycle, uh, you know, water cycle, energy flow. I knew none of that. Explain what you mean about exporting the carbon. Well, we were exporting grain. Um, soybeans are a low CN ratio crop. There's really no residue left for the, for the soil surface once you harvest the soybean. It's, and like, you know, it's really low CN ratio. So there's really nothing going back into the soil. We were harvesting the corn for silage. We're taking not just the ear, we're taking the entire plant and right. hauling it to a feedlot, putting it in a silo. My brother's harvesting all of our grassland for hay, putting strings around it, hauling it all to Western Kansas. So, you know, we, we were in the carbon export business for a few decades. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I guess can continue on through the 2000s. Well, as, as you can imagine, my farm paid a high price for that. Uh, you know, by 2000, we had converted to no-till because I had this hatred of soil erosion. 
And the, the so-called experts at the time told me that once we got two or three years into no-till that, you know, my life was perfect, that we'd reached the pinnacle, that everything would just be wonderful. And we're five years into no-till and erosion has not gotten better. It might've gotten worse in places. And by 2002, I'm ready to go back to conventional tillage because I, I can't make no-till work. And I was talked into rather forcibly by an agronomist at, at the No-Till in the Plains conference that year to, to plant one field of wheat. And I gave him every excuse that every farmer had for not growing wheat in Eastern Kansas that were too wet, were too warm at night, blah, blah, blah. You know, I had all the typical farmer excuses. And he finally looked at me with a just, he was so sick of listening to me. He says, God damn it, Gail, just plant one field and talk to me next year. And within one year, wheat was my number one cash crop. We had planted some cover crops in the late 90s, but I didn't understand my context. I didn't. I was planting them to prevent erosion, but I'm planting radishes and turnips, not really crops, cover crops that are really good at preventing erosion. But when we planted that one wheat crop in 2002, in my mind, everything clicked. That it wasn't the no-till. It was my, it was my mismanagement of the farm and of the rotation, my lack of understanding of context. My, my thinking that no-till is the answer when no-till was literally a tool. And it, I suddenly realized what cover crops were meant to do. And it, that's when I learned what carbon was. Uh, it, it was really sad, like I said, that you know I'm now 40 years old and none of these things were ever taught to us in soil class or any farming workshops I'd ever attended was carbon cycle, mineral cycle, water infiltration, any of these things. So you know, from 2002 to 2010, it was a sharp learning curve. Okay. So soil health journey started in 2002 to 2010. So what's the operation yeah. look like in about 2010? Uh, by 2010, we had gone from a corn soybean all roundup ready rotation to a five-year rotation of a mix of cool and warm season grasses and one year of broadleaf. We had about 15, 16 different grain crops that we could plug in and out of that rotation. We're growing cover crop for seed. We're growing cash grain, uh, non-GMO for mostly the commodity market. We did get a little premium for non-GMO, but it wasn't much. Um, it didn't take a rocket scientist to look at that first real true cover crop in 2002 and say, this is forage. And the cows came back really fast. Uh, in, in the fall of 2002 or 2003, I literally traded a semi-load of corn for nine uh, coal cows from a, from a neighboring ranch. And I still remember taking them to our 40-acre playground where we were experimenting, backing the trailer up, letting them out. And Lynette and I both looked at each other, said a prayer, and just hoped that they were alive the next morning when we went and checked on them. Because we're growing things that we couldn't, you know, we couldn't find any data on if they would eat it. And if it did, would it kill them? I mean, it was literally that much of an experiment at that point in time. That's, that sounds pretty cool. That sounds really cool. So how'd those cows do? They were all alive the next morning. And not only were they alive, but they were in love with me. <laughs> Probably all kinds of good uh, stuff to eat out there that they never thought they wanted. Ex exactly. And, and obviously this happened in the fall, you know, trading corn for cows. This was October. So, you know, the, the native grasses were all done. So, you know, their option would have been staying on the ranch they were on and eating hay all winter and a little grain or me turning them out on a, a rye, pea, oat, cover crop mix that was 
green for another 30 or 40 days and they they thought they had died and gone to heaven they were they were happy campers i got some cold cows what do you want to trade me for them (laughs) (laughs) not 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 as interested today (laughs) (laughs) okay so by 2010 sounds like you guys had, had really diversified what you're growing brought some cows back to the land but you're still on quite a few acres yes yeah, I'm, I'm still probably 2,500 acres plus. Uh, you know, we, we had realized with, with the wheat and then, you know, my becoming a sponge for information. And, and, you know, another thing about me, I told you I'm ADHD. I just have my, my observation is I'm, I'm wired different than a lot of people. And that's why they call it I don't neurodiverse. Know. We'll, we'll go with that. That's a pleasant <laughs> way of putting it. But, uh, I realized the need for diversity. I also got really lucky about that time. And, you know, I, because I was the first one in Kansas to start planting cover crops, I got asked to do some speaking at workshops and then at some large conferences and was able at that time to meet, you know, people like Gabe Brown and Dr. Jill Clapperton. And Jill was really the one being the scientist that could back up what I was doing. And she was the one that really helped, you know, gave me the pat on the back or held my hand trying all this diversity and, and encouraged me to continue, you know, get away from the monocultures and we're, we're planting multi-species cover crops and we're having dinner. She's at my house one night. This is probably 2004 or five. And I said, Jill, this is really working. Our, you know, our corn is responding. Our yields are, are good. Our, the, the test weight of the grain is going up. But I got a question for you. Why, why are you wanting me to plant multi-species cover crops that we're planting our corn in a monoculture? And she just smiled and she goes, I've been waiting on you to ask that question. And so starting in 2006, we're planting clovers with our corn and strips and doing some experimenting like that. And, and that was really cool. And it was, it was just, you know, Brian, it made farming fun. I, I, that monoculture stuff doesn't work very good for a guy that's ADHD, you know, <laughs> getting to go out every morning and looking at all of these different things that are growing. And it's just, it, it was fun and exciting. And, and probably for the first time in 10 or 20 years, I, I wanted to get out of bed every morning and go to work. It was just a blast. That's kind of how I felt when I started doing the strip grazing. Like I'd kind of, kind of got a little burnout on, on a few things and getting in the strip grazing, going out and moving the cattle every day. It really helped. It really helped settle my mind. Now, I, I want to back up a little bit and talk about your clover strips and corn. Can you tell me a little bit about how that, like, how that works and what that did for you? Because I, I think there's more than one person that listens to this podcast that grows corn. Yeah, sure. You know, in the beginning, it was you know working with Jill, who had a, a lot better knowledge of plants than I did. Uh, but this time, you know, I think. You know, my knowledge is, is certainly better and my confidence. But in the beginning, we're, we're just looking at, at low-growing plants that can tolerate some shade, would not compete with the corn for moisture, and maybe possibly convert some nitrogen from the, you know, from the legume to the corn plant late season to help boost yield and, and test weight of the corn. Uh, it worked fantastic. And from there, you know, we, it wasn't long after that we run into a, a, a lunatic scientist named Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. Uh, this is now we're in 2008, 2009. And as you can imagine, the next thing that happens after we start planting all these cover crops 
the insect population on my farm explodes. And as a farmer, that That's is a horrifying. really, really bad thing. You know, we've been trained for, for decades that if you see an insect, you kill an insect. And, and, but we're seeing ladybugs and, and all of these other things. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm supposed to like ladybugs, but I don't know why. And so we ran into Jonathan at No-Tilna Plains and met him and, and got an understanding of the predator-prey relationship. And yes, there are really good insects and almost all insects are good. And, and so then we started trying to add things into our, our cover crops and our companion mixes and our corn and, and our other crops that would, that would attract more insects and attract pollinators and attract predator species. And so then it become about, as, you know, even adding more diversity, you know, bringing in things like buckwheat and things that may not necessarily be legumes that, that add direct benefits to corn, but if they can attract pollinators or, you know, beneficial insects, and it, it's all just a win-win at the end of the, at the end of the day. I think like beneficial insects is very understated and you know, yeah, I'm, I'm quite a bit younger than you are about 20 years or so. And I remember going through the eighties and it was, you know, the mindset even through the eighties and early nineties was, well, we got to kill it all. We got to kill it all. That no-till crap doesn't work. Just farm it up, spray a chemical on it. Can't have any bugs. Can't have anything at all in, our, in the fields. Fields have to be totally, completely clean. I think a couple of decades of that, you know, clean field mentality, it kind of circles back to, you know, what Michael Thompson was saying in his episode that they designed these farming systems to work in a flower pot in a lab and to make them work out in the real world. It's just such a high input operation with all the, you know, herbicides, pesticides, you know, and in this case, we're talking about the pesticides. Yeah, you can grow anything inside. It can be as sweet as it wants, and it's never susceptible to attack by insects. But I think we both know that there's a lot of insects that are great. Like almost 97% of insects are beneficial to the plant somehow. But we're going to kill everything to get rid of that 3% that's actually damaging to our crop. Um, here at the garden that we grow... Every, the last two years, we've bought like a giant box of ladybugs. May and June, let them go. Just let it like, I think, I think the one we got last year was like 10,000 ladybugs and it was basically a shoebox. Yeah. Cool, isn't it? Um, I, I think part of with me was one of the first books I read uh, during this time frame was One Straw Revolution by Masanubu Fukuoka. And, it, you know, he really changed the way I look at things, the way I think about things. And one of the quotes in his book was, there's no such thing as a good insect or a bad insect. They're just insects. And I think when you think about that and you think about what you just said and what we've been talking about for the last few minutes, you know, man has this thing about conquering nature. That's, this, that's all we've ever done is think we, we have to impose our will on nature. We have to have a clean slate. We have to kill everything there so that we can grow the one thing that we want. And, you know, what it boils down to is, is man swallowing his pride and working with nature and realizing that, that nature already has a near perfect system in place. And when you let her operate in her context, she's going to take care of it for you. And we, we grow miles and miles and miles of corn 
Well, it's probably a pretty safe bet that there's going to be an insect that loves to eat corn is going to show up. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the more you remove diversity, the more you remove diversity. And, and the only insect left is the one that likes corn. So, you know, we just got to think about this a little bigger picture. And, and that, that was just part of the fun of, of, you know, the learning curve that I was on is just watching all of this farm coming back to the life and, you know, learning what ate what. And it was just, it was just really cool and really fun. And, you know, and, and I think for me, uh, during this time frame, we, I'm starting to understand the predator prey relationship and I'm, you know, I'm embracing insects. And, you know, for me as a grazer, you know, the one thing I wanted to see was dung beetles. I just couldn't wait. You know, I remembered them as a kid, as a really young kid, seeing them on our farm and I hadn't seen them in decades. And lo and behold, two or three years after we bring the cows back and we quit using the insecticides, the dung beetles returned. And I remember walking out the door one day and we just grazed off past the house and the, the cows had been gone about a week. And I went out to examine and every cow pie that I could find was flipped over and the dung beetle hole was, was clawed up. And I'm like, holy cow, something's eating my dung beetles. And I just panicked, you know, I did, wait a minute, I, I got in this for dung beetles. And I, so I go back in the house and I research and do you know what the number one or what, what the, one of the top predators of the dung beetle is? I, I actually, I don't. Skunks. Really? And we had seen a huge influx of skunks around the farm that fall. And I'm like, you know, I didn't get into this to grow skunks. I got into this <laughs> to grow dung beetles. I mean, this sucks. And so then I, I go, wait, wait a minute, Gail, the new you. And I go back to the computer and I type in, you know, predators of skunks. <laughs> Owls. Okay. And the owl population had taken off too. And I'm like, okay, I, I can live with this. You know, I, I can give up a few dung beetles to bring some owls onto the farm. And so, you know, again, it's just chill out, let mother nature deal with it. There's, there's ebbs and flows and it all cycles around and, and it all works. I, that was a great bit, that relationship about the skunks and the owls and the dung beetles. I've never heard that. That's, that's really interesting. And I've noticed, I feel like dung beetles, it's been a while since I've seen a lot of dung beetle activity, like the rollers almost every year. I'm, I'm never without tunnelers and burrowers, you know, the, the smaller ones that, that dig the holes and they come up from the bottom, but the rollers, the ones that can deconstruct an entire pat in like 20 minutes. I haven't seen those for two years. And I'm not sure why I don't think it's, I don't think it's any of the, Maybe they've just moved on. Maybe they're just conditions weren't quite right. I don't know. Yeah, I I can echo that. Um, a little bit of my is because I've moved to a new farm and we're back on a dead soil, and so we're we're having to reintroduce some things. And so uh, we did see higher counts of dung beetles across the board last year, but my last year on the prior farm in 2019, our our, our counts were down a little bit and yeah, I, I didn't panic. It could be environmental. It could be the weather, you know, we could have got drift from the neighbors. You, you never know, but I, I am concerned. Uh, you know, there's just not enough of you and me out here. And, and at the end of the day, there's a lot more pressure from insecticides and everything else. It's, it's getting tough for everything to survive. I'm afraid. Does it seem like, more people are 
are coming around to the regenerative side faster. Like, I guess has COVID accelerated people being more aware of what's in their food and what's on their food? Um, that's probably a two-part question. I think the, the farmer side of that, yeah, I think, I think they're coming around fast. I know they're coming around faster. We're seeing more and more interest. I think the, the farm economic crisis, whatever you want to call it, the meltdown certainly isn't hurting that. I think farmers are more receptive to whatever it takes to survive. Um, and I think that we're also seeing enough success stories with, you know, you mentioned Michael Thompson and all, you know, there's just dozens of great farmers in Kansas, all corners doing fabulous things and it's working. And I think their neighbors are starting to see that. So I think that's helping. Uh, I think at the end of the day, farmers truly are concerned with what their urban cousins think of what they're doing to the environment. And I think there's, there's, that comes into place. So yeah, it's happening a lot faster on the farmer side of it, before we flip to the, to the COVID and the consumer side, the, the, the disappointing part for me is on this, on this latest generations and the, the farmers coming into region now, they, they're, they're using cover crops faster and better and, and they're, they're looking at implementing, you know, intercropping of, of cover crops with their cash crops but I don't know if I see the desire to get away from the chemicals fast enough. I and that agree. scares me. Um, I see way too many guys calling themselves regen posting on Facebook and talking about using this big witch's brew of chemicals to wipe out their cover crop to plant their cash crop into. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm not saying we need to quit chemicals overnight, cold Turkey. That's, that's a difficult thing to do, but, I'm not hearing the plans I, you know, I've, I've got five years to get rid of chemicals or I'm going to eliminate Roundup in two years and this chemical, you know, insecticides in three years or whatever. I'm not hearing that. And that, that bothers me a lot because that's not what regenerative ag is about. We, we, it's got to have the goal of eliminating and being truly regenerative. Um, on the customer and the COVID side. Yeah. I think we had a fantastic window when the, especially when the lockdown set and we started seeing, interruptions in the supply chain and 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 customers suddenly started planting gardens and buying chickens and shopping local and you know we i think you and i watched with awe shop kansas farm almost had a meltdown in the early <laughs> weeks because they couldn't keep up uh, and that's that's all a really good thing uh yeah, it was like a full-time job think, for somebody just to approve applications in that group for a couple of weeks i'm glad that wasn't yeah. me and bless you yeah, whoever did absolutely. that absolutely yeah uh, I, I am too, and and but I think I think we we missed, and part of it is probably because you know we weren't able to gather, and we weren't, and and I don't know, we we just we had a really good opportunity to educate the consumers as to why it was important, and not just because of the supply chain, but I think, you know, personally I, I'm of the total belief that COVID was a warning shot from Mother Nature. Um, it was it. it man's man's treatment of the environment and of the soil and water and air and the consumers consumeristic habits is what made covid what it was i mean it's a really mild virus and there's no reason the environment and our systems didn't just flush it through there was no reason for this to be something a concern but because of the way we've degraded the environment and the soil and our immune systems 
it became much worse than it was. And there's, there's another virus coming that's going to be much, much worse. And if we don't change the way we grow and consume food and energy and fiber, um, it, it's going to get a lot worse, a lot faster. And, that, you know, we, we've got a lot of work to do to, to educate the consumers on why this is important that they're, they're on Shop Kansas Farm or, or hitting the farmer's markets more than they were or growing their own food more than they were. I'm remembering the words of Joel Salatin about how to create a pathogen-friendly environment. And we've done it. I mean, we do it. We've done it in feedlots. We do it in chicken barns. We do it in dense urban areas. I mean, there's, I can go, I can look at a picture of New York City and all those giant tall buildings full of, you know, apartments and think, that's just a CAFO for humans. That's just a vertical CAFO for humans. You fly over the suburbs. That's a ver- it's a horizontal CAFO for humans. And we, we engineer these pathogen-friendly environments by trying to sterilize everything. But what we end up doing is we end up killing that 90 to 97% of the good bugs, of the good insects, of the good microbes, of the good bacteria, of the viruses that don't hurt us. And then what we can't kill becomes even stronger. And once it breaks free, just like we've seen with COVID, it breaks into an unlimited reservoir of 8 billion people and 8 billion chances to mutate into something worse. I think we got lucky with COVID that it mutated into something that wasn't as bad more transmissible, but less severe. The worry is like the next time some, the next time a disease comes out of the wild, is it going to be like SARS, like COVID? And is it going to end up being relatively mild or is something really horrible going to come out? Like, I don't know, a variant of Marburg, you know, hemorrhagic fever or variant of Ebola. Like, I don't even really want to talk about that kind of stuff. Cause that's, you know, that's really pandemic. That's like, that shut everything down immediately. COVID was a bad cold. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm making light of anybody that's, you know, been affected by it or have, you know, friend or family member that's, that's been affected by it or lost their life. It's tragic. But I think that the response was way blown out of proportion. Yeah, it, it was, and and at the same time, I I believe you're spot on. I, there, I'm totally the belief there is a worse virus coming, and probably sooner rather than later. And I think we got, you know, like I said, this, this one was pretty mild. I I really think Mother Nature gave us our warning shot. Shape up, or you know, she's going to fire find a new tenant if we don't if we don't learn how to grow food responsibly, uh, you know, to to grow fiber responsibly and to become a lot more regenerative, you know, at, at our field school in 2019, we had Fred Provenza and Zach Bush, two of the, the great nutritionists of our time. Like a space-time vortex there. Yeah, exactly. And in March of 2019, Zach Bush stood on the stage and said, we are primed on this planet for something like a virus that's going to be a plague on humanity and the, the two places that I see it happening are in North Carolina or in Wuhan, China. North Carolina because the chicken and hog barns. Uh, the, the, the lab, there's viral labs in both of those places. 
plus the CAFO units in in North Carolina, chicken and hog make prime breeding grounds for viruses and other. We, we can't say that other... that lab in China in Wuhan had anything to do with this virus getting out in the world or else they'll deplatform me completely. We can't say that. Nope. And, and I'm not because the, the thing that both of these cities have besides the lab, as you mentioned, we have the CAFOs in North Carolina that are great breeding grounds. And Wuhan probably has some of the worst air quality on the planet because that's where a lot of we've we've shipped all of our manufacturing to China because we don't want the environmental stewardship in our country. We've passed it all on to other countries that either can't afford environmental stewardship or don't care. Or they don't have a minimum wage and they can pay their workers 12 cents a day. Yep. You know, that's yeah. I, I think that's more wages. And wages, OSHA and EPA have driven more jobs offshore than anything else. And people can sit here and say, oh, greedy capitalist, greedy capitalist. No, you just don't want to pay a fair price even for your food. You know, don't talk to me about about paying a fair price when you're eating avocado toast in February. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's where the consumer side of this comes into play with regeneration is we, we've got to change and not just regeneration, but with COVID or the coming viruses, you know, we've got to change our consumeristic behaviors. We're, we've become a society that is, that is hell bent on convenience and cheap. And we do so at the cost of the environment in, in third world countries. And we do so at, at our, the cost of our own health and, and, you know, Cheap food is food that is grown without nutrition and loaded with toxins. 100%. Okay. So we were, we we're still, we we're still trying to chart your journey <laughs> from, from small, very diversified family farm through a bottleneck of a two crop oscillation to a journey of soil health. And that takes us mm-hmm. up to about 2010. By, by 2010, things were really starting to click. Um, you know, I, I'm becoming confident in, in the cover crops, confident in my rotation, confident in our ability of, to grow soil rapidly, to, to improve the environment and, and improve my bottom line at the same time. And one last side note to, to kind of go back to square one and start over again. So I, I included this in some of my presentations, but I, I kind of charted every 10 years of my life on the farm. And from the, from the early 70s through the early 2000s, every 10 years, the diversity on the farm declined. We, we took crops out of the rotation or animals off of the farm. And at the same time, our reliance on outside inputs went up fertilizers to herbicides to suddenly insecticides and then more more fertility and micronutrients and then fungicides and and then all of a sudden you know once you start using a fungicide or an insecticide now you've got to use them two or three times a year and it was incredible now by 2010 as we start to reverse that again and we're starting to bring more diversity back on the farm with livestock more diversity on our rotation and grain crops and cover crops and our, our reliance on inputs dropped drastically and and, you know we just kind of went full circle and it was just amazing to see the more we relied on the farm to produce what it needed the less we needed to rely on outside sources for chemicals salt fertilizers etc so you know that was really good to see 
so by, you know, by 2010, I'm feeling pretty bulletproof. I'm flying all over the country, speaking at conferences. Uh, you know, we're, we're now past the cover cropping stage, not that we're past it, but we, we've kind of got that figured out. We're starting to work more and more on intercropping and trying to find ways of growing cash crops with cover crops. And this is also about the time that Lynette starts looking at nutrition from a human perspective. And she asked me if we can buy some chickens. Okay. And I'm a cowboy. <laughs> right. Chick, chicken, I grow beef. Chicken isn't allowed. But um, she, she just said, you know, I want some layers because grocery store eggs suck. They taste like crap. I'm like, you know, I really don't care because I really don't want chickens on the farm. But I says, here's the deal. My grandparents' house was still there. There was a, a chicken house in the yard. I said, you know, you ask dad if he'll let you have the chicken house. And that's your deal. I'm out. Well, I knew she could play my dad pretty easily, and she did. And so um, the chicks show up, and I look down in the box, and there's all these little white fluffy chicks, and then there's about half of them are not. There are all these, or there's all these fluffy chicks that are all different colors. Sorry, I got this backwards, which I expected out of Lynette because she loves color. She loves diversity. And I knew she probably bought one of each breed, but about half the box is full of white chicks. And I said, what's with all these white chicks? She's Oh, they, you know, typical female. Oh, they had a special. <laughs> buy, buy so many layers and you get so many meat chickens for half the price or something like that. And I'm like, I'm, I, you know, I'll eat eggs, but now you're asking me to eat chicken. This, this wasn't the deal. Little, this was not the deal at all. And, but she's raising meat chickens. And, you know, it was weird because at the time we hadn't really never talked much about doing direct marketing, you know, farmers weren't, we were never taught how to sell ourselves, tell our story, sell a product. We were taught to go sell at the co-op. Exactly. I, you know, I was trained to, to, to haul my stuff to the co-op, bend over and take whatever they gave me. And, and then I was supposed to smile about it with my $5 hat on the way out the door that they gave me as a bonus. And, but neighbors were stopping in the yard and saying, Hey, you have chickens. You know, the whole irony of somebody stopping in a farmyard and asking, you have chickens? <laughs> that might right? tell you we've gone a little too far the wrong way, right? And and they wanted they wanted to buy a dozen eggs. They wanted to buy a chicken to eat. And, you know, next thing I know, Lynette's starting to sell chickens. And, you know, where we are today just kind of started to blow up then out of an accident. Out of accidentally buying chickens because they were on sale. That's... Yep. I can, I can believe that. Okay. So we start with some chickens and, and cowboy Gale doesn't like the chickens. And now we've got sheep, goats, and pigs, and ducks and everything else. How did we get there, Gale? How did we get there, cowboy Gale? I, I was just going to say, and it got even better because in 2011, one year later, she came to me and she goes, you know, we need some sheep. <laughs> and I said, you know, you, you got away with chickens, but you're asking a lot out of a cowboy now to, to bring sheep on the farm. But, you know, I, she kept it up and kept talking about it. And, you know, by now I'm, I'm starting to understand that for me to put my money where my mouth is, I'm talking about diversity of crops and I'm growing all these different grain crops. We're, we're now growing uh, for grain crops, mung beans and cowpeas and barley 
alongside wheat and corn and soybeans. We're growing sunflowers and milo again. And I'm, I'm promoting 20, 30 way mixes. And we're now planting 100 way mixes of cover crops on the farm. But all I got are cows. So, you know, it, it's time to put your money where your mouth is. And in studying sheep, uh, they are a ruminant, but they graze differently than cows. Their manure is a different CN ratio of cows. Everything about them says, I'm not a cow. And it just made sense. You know, we, you know, they, they eat things that cows didn't necessarily like. And um, doing my research and, you know, meeting guys like Greg Judy, you know, I find out I can bring so many sheep on the farm and not have to sell a single cow. Kind of stupid not to, isn't it? Right. So we, we bring in the sheep and lo and behold, not only, you know, I'd, I'd eaten lamb a few times in my life, but it was grain finished lamb. It tasted like mutton. It tasted like sheep. I, I ate it. It was okay. I didn't ask for seconds, <laughs> but when we took our first bite of grass finished lamb, it's as good as any ribeye I've ever eaten. And I, you know, we fell in love with the meat. Uh, we found out that once we learn not to treat the sheep like cows, that they're very easy to manage. Uh, and they're also much more profitable than cows. You know, the old saying about I, I have cows for sex appeal and sheep to pay the note. It's completely true. I think I heard it on Clay Connery's podcast that, uh, they say they keep the horses up front for the tourists, the cows around the house for the neighbors and the sheep are out back paying for everything. Yep. Spot on. Okay. So we've got sheep, we've got, uh, and we've got chickens still farming, quite still farming a bunch of acres. And I'm curious as to how you made the transition from where you were then to where you are now. Um, by this point in time, by 2011 and 12, I'm probably 1,800, 2,000 acres. We had downsized some. We'd had some ground sold that we couldn't, couldn't afford to buy. And, and we knew we wanted to downsize as we brought the cattle in also because we, we just didn't need the cropland anymore. Uh, I went to the Grass-Fed Exchange Conference. It was actually in Bismarck, North Dakota that year. And I, I went, we, Lynette and I decided to grass finish our first beef just to see if we could do it. And... Um, I went up there basically to learn how to grass finish, but also to find a market. I, and at that point in time, I was going to be the guy selling semi loads of grass finished beef to whoever the uh, Tyson of the grass finished world was. Uh, yeah. that, that was my whole goal. <laughs> you know, with eight, 1,800 acres of cover crops, I could grass finish a lot of beef. So I thought. And sounded good on paper. It, it sounded good on paper. It looked good on paper. Uh, but I got to the meeting and there was a farmer panel. And that's where I found out that at that time that almost everybody grass finishing beef, at least north of I-70, was feeding some grain and grazing corn stalks. And yeah. I stood up and asked the question, you know, I'm new to this, but as a consumer... And we're by now we're direct marketing some chicken and stuff to consumers and people are asking about beef. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm just under the impression that all my customers think that grass finished means organic grass finished. Every day on pasture. Every day on pasture. And one of the one of the panelists, farmers, says, you know, 
to, to grass finish this far north, we just we've got to have a little energy in the winter. We got to feed a little bit of grain. It's not much. And and he also made the comment. He goes, it's more to me about marketing. And I I believe I'm a guy that can sell that can sell ice to Eskimos. That's a problem. That's a problem. And the the room turned and it got ugly and it literally turned into a near riot. And by the time they got everybody calmed down and they finished the, the panel, I went out the door, I'm on the phone. Um, it, this is also probably something we'll be talking about in a minute, but I had also found Don Huber at the time, started to understand about Roundup glyphosate GMOs. We were trying to get away from that anyway. And I, I called Lynette going out the door. I, I'm livid. And I said, this is what's going on. I said, I'm not going to be a part of any of these labels. We're going to have to get small and market our own product because this ship is going to sink and I'm not going to be on the Titanic when it does. I get that. I, I can see that. You know, like we were talking about earlier, these, these terms regenerative, such high danger of being co-opted. Like the last thing we want is a company like Cargill or Monsanto coming out and starting to co-opt and, and greenwash the term regenerative. I don't think that, I don't think they really understand what it is, what regenerative is. I think they're just seeing dollar signs and trying to cash in on a label. Yeah. And I, yeah, I agree we're, with you. They're, we're they're already seeing, seeing. Go ahead. We're already seeing. I mean, Regen is already being greenwashed by these companies and others. I mean, you got Country Croc trying to sell Regen margarine. <laughs> That's margarine's an industrial byproduct. That's not food. <laughs> yep. Pretty hard to make something that's one molecule away from plastic regenerative at, at, at any level. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, that's, that's kind of what it comes down to is, you know, these inputs, if we're going to talk about being regenerative, you talked about carbon. Okay. And you know, my dad, and you know, for years, he's been saying calories consumed, calories produced. And that basically is the essence of the carbon equation. How much food can we produce? What is that worth in BTUs or calories? And then how much energy did it take to produce that in BTUs or in calories? I mean, there's all scientific units, energy is energy. A BTU is a BTU. It doesn't matter if it's stored in the muscle cells of a cow or if it's in fossil fuels, BTUs or BTUs. So when can we start looking at the carbon cost of our protein, because that's that's what it has to come down to is what is the carbon cost of our protein? And I, I think the big money, the Wall Street money would like us to think that that's in a plant-based diet. And I think you and I can both know that that plant-based diet that's gonna make all these, you know, meat-free patties and, you know, meat-free chicken nuggets, that's monoculture farming. That's heavy industrial processing. That's toxic chemical industrial processes to make all these byproducts that they need for flavoring and like these things like soy hemoglobin. I can't even remember what it's called, but they're one of the things they're not even recognized as safe to consume by the FDA. They're still kind of under a trial period. And people think it's good to eat like beyond meat. They had their IPO was huge. They made so much money. 
And here guys like you and I are, we're like struggling to feed our cows every day, <laughs> struggling against the poor cattle market. Well, you're not because you're direct marketing. I'll get there someday. So yeah, there's a lot of danger in hitching your wagon to a label like grass fed. And the truth of it is, just like what you're doing with Circle 7, connecting the consumer directly with their food and being open and transparent about how, about how you produce that food. Yeah, and that was, so that was, that was where we went from there was we had to learn how to tell our story. We had to learn how to market. We had to learn a new lingo. And we were completely blown away. You know, at this point in time, we're not organic yet. Uh, our farm is far from perfect. Not that there's any such thing as a perfect farm. But what we found was the consumers that we contacted didn't care how imperfect we were. They wanted to see our faces. They wanted to be able to give us a hug. They wanted to come see the farm. They wanted to hear the words, we care about our farm. We care about your kids' future on this planet. We care about the environment. We care about the air and the water. That's, they, they wanted a face on their food. That's, that's what they wanted. They wanted to hear our story that we were trying to change and that we were trying to do things better. And, you know, I, I, I talked earlier about how farmers have purposely been kept in the dark and you know, never taught how to tell their story. We've never been empowered. And for the first year, <clears throat> excuse me, for the first year that I was direct marketing, I struggled to look my customers in the eye when I gave them their total for their purchase. Because I was, you know, this was so much more than I'd ever received for any product. And even though I totally believed in the product, I, my confidence probably still wasn't there enough yet, you know, to, to, to be able to look them in the eye with total confidence, knowing that the, the value is in this product. Because, you know, I'd just been brainwashed to the point of thinking that, that, you know, my product is worth commodity price only. And it's not, and like we talked about earlier, it's not worth commodity price because you're not externalizing your costs. You're being upfront and you're being transparent about, about your environmental impacts, your ecological impacts, and, and the way you live your life. Yeah. So, and I'm not being subsidized. Yeah. You're one of those, you're one of those guys like me that, uh, avoids the FSA office <laughs> like it's a place that uh, wow I kind of jumped to three different things and I never never did decide on one but yeah FSA office place you avoid like the plague don't want to go I don't they probably don't even know who I am in there anymore and I think that's fine yeah I I, I don't miss that part of farming at all um you know, I, part, part of my realization along the line there in the early 2000s when we were contemplating change is, you know, grain farming in Kansas, there was two things that I needed to make a year successful. Rainfall in August and government check. And when as a farmer, I've got, you know, the two things that dictate my year, the, the number one and two things that dictate my year are two things out of my control. I, I might be in the wrong line of work. Yeah. And rain in August, we don't really get much usually. <laughs> no. 
And if you don't get any in August, it's awful hard to grow a wheat crop, awful hard to get that, you know. Yeah. So keep keep walking me through your journey of downsizing, downsizing your size and increasing your diversity. Uh, so it was about this time, two, two other things happened in 2011 and 12, besides us looking into marketing. And so, you know, when I left Bismarck, uh, you know, Lynette and I were already starting to chart the course that we were going to have to get smaller, that, you know, there's no way I could direct market, you know, eight or 10 semi loads of grass finished beef. Uh, Even now finding outlets for that much is you really can't. Nope. Yeah, sadly, that's that's the next thing we've got to address with Regen, and that's probably a topic for another conversation of what we're wanting to do with with Great Plains regeneration. But uh, so we we knew we had to downsize. Uh, we we thought the profit potential was there that we could downsize greatly. Um, also, you know, I being an early adopter of no-till and the first person in Kansas to start planting cover crops and because of the way I was farming in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, the downside was I was probably using as much or more Roundup than the next 10 farmers below me combined. Um, so with that, I also became the first farm to start having Roundup resistant weeds. Before we really knew what was going on, we just, you know, we had no clue why Roundup went from being the, the savior of just perfectly golf course looking manicured fields with nothing growing besides soybeans to fields were full of weeds. And it's happened really rapidly. And I'd already started hearing rumors about what glyphosate was and that there could be some issues, but, you know, I asked my team members and they all gave me the pat on the back. My team members being my bank, my agronomist, seed sales people, you know, <laughs> extension agents, they all gave me the, Guys that really have don't, your back at the end of the day, yeah? Yep. We, we got you. Don't listen to those tree-hugging environmentalist hippies out in California. They don't know squat. Uh, but also, you know, because I was speaking at conferences, I was, you know, I was running into scientists that had left the system, and and they had other stories to tell. And I remember we I went to a no-till in the plains event in Nebraska one winter. Jill Clapperton was speaking, and there was a snowstorm that day. And there was, I think there was three of us showed up, period. And there were, you know, there's a couple sponsors in the room. Ray Ward was in the room with Ward Labs. And she walks out and she goes, wow, I, we were afraid the snow was going to hurt us. She goes, you know what? There's something I've been wanting to get off my chest. If you guys are okay with it, can we change the topic for the day? And we said, well, what do you got in mind? She goes, I want to talk about glyphosate. And my hero, who was Jill Clapperton at the time, spent the next six or seven hours telling me everything that she had been learning about glyphosate. And I had a extremely long drive home. What's what what and, are the cliff notes? Um that there it was doing more harm than good. There was issues with human health. There was, you know, all these things that we've been hearing out of the out of the hippies. And she mentioned a guy named Don Huber, who was doing a lot of the research. And I came home and started researching Don Huber, looking up his articles, his research papers. And I found a podcast that he did. It was a two-hour podcast. And, and for anybody that hasn't listened to Don Huber, it is literally drinking out of the fire hose. I mean, the man throws so much stuff. And, and I can remember 
talking with Gabe Brown a couple of times because he was in the same boat as I, I was in at the time. And he had heard of Huber and we just kept thinking, you know, there's no way this can be true. You know, there's just, this guy's got an ax to grind, but we kept thinking, you know, if one tenth of what he says is true, this is bad. And this one particular podcast, I listened to it five or six times. It was so full of information. I could never get it all in, but I, I knew there was something there was missing. And one night, it's about 1130 at night. I'm listening to it. And I heard him say that glyphosate was an antibiotic. Okay. And as a student of soil health and a guy that was suddenly trying to grow soil microbes, spraying my ground once, twice, three times a year with an antibiotic didn't seem like a very good thing. And Lynette, by this point in time, you know, Lynette is full-blown into researching human health. I'm full-blown into researching soil health. And I would come home from conferences after spending a couple of days with people like David Brand and Chris Nichols and Christine Jones and Joe Clapperton and Ray Archuleta. And, and my conversation with Lynette's would parallel, you know, what she's reading about the human gut and, and human health. And, and the talk is almost identical. And so, you know, it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks that night that spraying an, an antibiotic on my ground, on my crop, and then putting that food in my gut, it, it all just came full circle. And I didn't sleep for two days. Um, I, I, I literally cried for about 30 minutes that night. I called both my kids the next morning, uh, first thing, and apologized to them for everything I've done as a farmer for the previous 10 years. Wow. And I, you know, I swore off Roundup and as a farmer to, to, to quit using glyphosate, it's not very easy. Um, and, I, and I think that's part of the reason that it's still hanging around too much in the regen world today. But after meeting Don Huber and, and, and others now that are coming out, there is no room in food production for glyphosate, period. And... Can you expand on that a little more on why? Well, I mean, the fact that it's an antibiotic and, and you, you mentioned earlier about us cleansing the system with antibiotic soaps and, you know, we're, we're living in a, in a clean world. Well, our, I, I don't care, you know, companies like Subway talk about their, their sandwiches or antibiotic arranged with antibiotic free animals. That's, that's BS. Cause if they're, if they're eating corn and soy, that's, you know, Roundup Ready, that, that grain's loaded with antibiotics and that's going through our guts. And that explains, you know, when, when you start breaking down the, the gut barrier. Start talking uh, about autoimmune disease and, and all kinds of yeah, fun Plus stuff. the lack of nutrient density in, in the grain and the fruits and the vegetables and the livestock. And now we, we've got rampant autoimmune, cancer, diabetes, obesity. Uh, all of these uh, are just skyrocketing. Is glyphosate the reason? It's not the only reason, no, but it's a large piece of the puzzle. I agree. And, you know, you, you can take and lay down graphs of, you know, pesticide use, herbicide use, synthetic fertilizer use, lay that against a graph of food production. You can lay that against a graph of heart disease. You can lay that against a graph of diabetes. You can lay that against all kinds of graphs and scarily they all match up. Now, correlation does not necessarily mean causation. I think that like the soil health debacle 
that we've created by using synthetic fertilizer and chemicals like Roundup, we're going to pay that bill someday. We're going to pay that bill for the lack of fertility. We're going to pay that bill for using these chemicals like Roundup that are incredibly toxic to soil microbiology. And by extension, we're just walking bags of microbes. Our mutual friend, Matt Kleffer says that all the time, just a walking bag of microbes. And we're eating food that's constantly being sprayed with antibiotics or we're eating food that eats stuff that's been sprayed with antibiotics. And it's almost like, I, I, I guess I want to say mainstream science is completely against the idea that any of these residues from glyphosate make it into the corn, make it into the meat and actually affect us from eating the meat, you know, from that second, third, fourth order effect from the glyphosate. I think it does, but getting that to be proven is going to be really hard. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And then, you know, the, the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is there's been little of any research done yet on what happens now when you add 2,4-D to the glyphosate, when you add dicamba to the glyphosate, when you add neonicotinoids and all these other chemicals and toxins to the glyphosate. Um, and, and all the scientists I talk to across the board say, we, we've not, that research has not been done, but I promise you one plus one does not equal two. We're, we're gonna see these effects go up exponentially. As, as we tank mix these chemicals together and then put them in our guts. I, I was sitting here thinking more about Roundup and like the, the specific biological pathway that it, that it uses. And maybe, I, I know you've listened to a lot of Fred Provenza and Zach Bush, and I think this is where I got this from. But the specific pathway that Roundup inhibits has something to do with the binding of zinc within a cell is is that what you remember yep i i that's a little bit of it and zinc is one of those nutrients that's very critical for immune system function so if we're inhibiting a plant's ability to bind zinc in the cell or to utilize zinc in the cell we're reducing its ability its immune system and we're the same we're all made up of the same stuff, just arranged slightly differently. I mean, plants are the same. We're the same. The, bio, the same biological pathways and, and neurochemical, biochemical pathways that exist in a plant, some of those exist in a human being. The question I really have is, is, is glyphosate buildup in the body affecting our body's abilities to bind zinc and therefore lowering our immune, lowering our immune response? I, I, I'm not the person to ask that. My opinion would be yes, absolutely. And we do know on that subject, you know, glyphosate is a chelator of minerals when you use it in soybeans or on the soil or whatever. Zinc is one of those minerals that it chelates in the soil. So the, the soybeans that are coming off, the, the corn that is coming off, that is that seeing heavy rates of glyphosate, um, they're most likely going to be low in levels of zinc. Another one that it chelates is magnesium, uh, manganese. You know, we're now talking about minerals that, that could be slightly important in reproduction. 
Yep. So, uh, and obviously phosphorus would be another one being glyphosate, but there's just, there's, there's a host of, of minerals that it is chelating in the soil, not allowing it into the plant. It's got to be chelating it in our bodies. Uh, not that, not that the food we're eating has much, you know, zinc or magnesium or manganese in it anyway, but if, if there is, it, it could be being chelated. Yeah. You know, that brings to mind when I was a much, much younger man about when you're getting out of college and buying your first farm. <laughs> um, I was raised on wheat bread, on whole wheat bread and whole wheat bread, late seventies, early eighties. I mean, it was dark. It had some texture to it. I mean, it, it definitely, it wasn't like the whole wheat bread you're going to find in the store now, like probably in the same label and bag. I never knew white bread existed until I went to kindergarten. Now I had wheat bread with, you know, good cheese, good meat and get you old know, garden vegetables on it. Cause my parents had a garden here. Never seen white bread until I went to preschool and I go to pre preschool or kindergarten. First time we had to bring a sack lunch and I see these other kids eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on white bread. And I didn't know what I was missing for about six months. And then I got to go to a friend's house and I had white bread for the first time. I was like, Oh my God, this is so delicious. So I, then a little while later, I asked my mom, so mom, why can't we have white bread? It tastes so much better. And she said, it tastes better because it's full of sugar. We eat whole wheat bread because they leave the germ on it. And that's where all the good stuff is. That's where all the vitamins and minerals and nutrients, that's where they really are. And that's the stuff you need to eat. Eating bread without that is kind of pointless. Then enriched bread, enriched flour started to be a thing. So like we had this wonderful whole wheat. Now we're going to mill the germ off of it. So it's nice and pretty white. But then in order to make it healthy for you again, we're going to go ahead and enrich it and add all those vitamins back in, but they're not adding back in the vitamins they took out. They're adding back in quote the same vitamins, but probably from a different source. That's not bioavailable like it would be if those, if it was still attached in the wheat germ, that trend has just continued. You know, I, we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast about, you know, similarly how animal science has given us the CAFO and the chicken barn and the hog house. Food science has taken everything we eat or that we want to eat, take everything good out of it, put absolute cheapest crap in it to make it taste like what you think it should be. And I think about labels on packages. Like you, you sell direct and it's a pain in the butt to get a label for your meat, right? If these companies, these you know, mega food conglomerates that are feeding us toxic crap, they spend millions of dollars a year on marketing to find the right color combinations, to find the right shapes and the right words to use to appeal to somebody to get them to buy that product. And I guess the point that I'm making is the more claims that product makes about how good it is for you, the inverse is most likely true. Like if you go... You, know, you go buy one of those energy, like a, like a protein bar at the, at the convenience store, you know, 14 grams of protein, this many vitamins and minerals, this much, this, all the stuff you need for a day, basically a meal replacement. Then you start reading the label and like reading the ingredients and it gets kind of scary because there's a bunch of crap on there. You can't pronounce. So I think that the more the label claims 
to be healthy and flashy and the more claims the label's making, probably the less I want to put that in my body. Yeah. Does your body recognize that protein bar as food? I, I, I use the analogy, does grandma recognize it as food? If grandma doesn't recognize it as food, I'm probably not going to eat it. My grandma used oleo and margarine. So maybe that might not be the best judge. <laughs> well, my, my grandma is older than that. So I was, I was lucky. <laughs> maybe you're, maybe you're great. In your case, it's your great grandma. Does your great grandma recognize it as food? Yeah. Yep. Food that would rocks. probably be a much, much better judge if great grandmother would recognize it. So we still haven't got to the point where you moved farms. So in, in, in 2012, besides all of this other excitement that we had going on, uh, it was the second hottest, second driest year on record since 1936. And in the fall of that year, with all of our crops being zeros, like everybody else's, my, uh, my crop insurance was denied for my claims. And I think everybody's already heard this story, so I'll just hit the cliff notes. But I haven't I heard it. engaged on a... Well, I was denied my claims in the fall because I didn't uh, manage my cover crops. Basically, I didn't manage the termination of my cover crops properly. And uh, so I, you know, two months later, thanks to No-Till No Plains and Brian Lindley, and he got me in touch with National Wildlife Federation and Ryan Stockwell. And he flew Jill Clapperton and I to, to Washington, D.C., where we got to meet with the heads of the Ag Committees on the Democratic and Republican sides uh, with their staffers. We didn't get to meet with the congressman, which at the time was Stabenow of Michigan and Lucas of Oklahoma. We also met with Roberts and Moran's offices. We met with the NRCS chief, uh, the head of RMA, which is federal crop insurance. Uh, bit of a wake up call there, meeting your liberal and conservative congressional people and finding out they really don't give a flip about you, that it's all about them. But that, that's, a, that's a whole nother podcast there. Uh, we jumped through all the hoops there. You know, you have to play by their rules. Uh, we did all that. They denied our request for mediation, which forced us into arbitration. Uh, there was a date set. We, we put together our defense. This is pretty similar to a court case now. Um, uh, they, they set the date for the hearing of, of uh, April 1st, 2014, uh, we was denied in October of 2012, just to let you know how long this takes, because they think at some point you'll just give up and walk away. Uh, in April of 2013, the, we realized, you know, that we weren't going to have an answer by the growing season of 2013, and my bank uh, had no option but to call my line of credit because I didn't have crop insurance to back myself up that year. So, um, you know, I'm farming almost 2000 acres and no operating line, no way to buy seed, fuel, chemicals, tires, labor, whatever. That's a little scary. It, that was a little scary. It was a long summer. You know, I, I had a lot of friends brought me a pallet of seed, a pallet of chemical, you know, said, you know, here, here's this, pay me back when you can. Uh, Somehow we found a way to put in a crop, but it was 60 days late getting it done. We were still dry. It was a disaster. 
my harvest that year is pretty much zero. Uh, plus the fact that I'm now adding 10 hours a week to building my defense. So 10 hours a week for a farmer, I couldn't take 10 hours a week away from the farm, which meant I took 10 hours a week away from the family. Okay. Uh, so we got about, we got into the early, late winter, early spring of 2014. I'm now basically bankrupt. We're almost to arbitration date. And we started getting wind that it, in the emails and disclosing evidence back and forth between the two parties, they started sounding like they were changing their cause of denial. And so we rapidly had to put together a second defense. We get into the arbitration, which again is on April 1st, which is April Fool's Day. Nothing was lost on that, the date they chose for this. And we get into arbitration and sure enough, they changed their cause of denial in the arbitration hearing. In the middle of it with no notice. With, with no notice other than Brian and I sniffing it out in the emails. So we presented our original case for their cause of denial. We, we presented the, our defense for their new cause of denial. Plus, we presented a third case that they, by their own rules, can't change cause of denial midstream. Uh, the, I, I won't go into the details of the, of the, the hearing, but it, to say it was a mockery would be an understatement. Uh, it, I, I won't even share. I, well, I, I can't share with you some of the extremely stupid questions that were asked of us during that hearing, because um, I, I, I obviously I can't talk about it. But so a few weeks later, uh, we got verdict that we won all three cases, all three defenses. Uh, they got their hand slapped for for not following their own rules that they established. I, I was allowed to get my money out of them. I asked for interest, which was denied. And I then found out that I also couldn't sue them for damages because we had went through arbitration. And so that, that kind of soured me from wanting to participate in federal programs. I can imagine. The, the upside was because of our trip to Washington, D.C. and the, the, the media attention that we got through my trial, you know, NRCS went to bat and they 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 sat down with with federal crop insurance and the rules were rewritten the you know there was a lot of things changed it, it certainly wasn't a, a great system but it was a step in the right direction uh you know sadly i come out of this hemorrhaging so bad that we could never survive uh, and trying to farm like that it, it didn't take long to go from 1800 acres to 400 either us giving up land or landowners taking land away from me because I was no longer farming it in, a, in their best interest. You know, we not having money to operate, you know, pretty hard to get a crop planted timely. My, my cow crop became my operating line of defense. If I needed seed, I had to sell some cows. That meant sale was on Wednesday. I had to have cows loaded on Tuesday. You know, if anything went wrong, I had to wait a week. And, the, you know, the seed had to wait a week. Uh, that's not an optimal way to run a farm. So it was, it was pretty easy to get to 1,800 acres down to the 400 acre where we ended up in 2018. And uh, 
from there, my, my debt was too big for us to service with 400 acres in direct marketing. And I knew that, uh, I had to convince Lynette of that. She still had sadly too much confidence in me. And I, I had to really have a tough discussion with her. You know, it's a great thing. She had that much confidence in me, but it, it made the conversation that much tougher. And, and unfortunately, you know, between my divorce and the loss of the crop insurance, my parents had co-signed on my notes, which meant their farm was now in jeopardy, which meant my brother's farm could be in jeopardy. And, uh, you know, we had to work our way through all of that before we could sell out and make the move. Okay. I won't, I won't make you get into too much more of that. So what's the farm look like now? So now we, in 2019, we, we I sold my house. Um, we did not get the debt completely removed. We didn't quite get to where we wanted to be. We won't go into that. There was, there was other things that come into play there, but we got it, we got it whittled down enough. We were able to use a 1031 exchange on the taxes and bought a 160 acre food forest, beautiful farm on the edge of the Flint Hills in Greenwood County, Kansas. I moved an hour away from my roots, my home, my, what I thought was my future, my, you know, my blood, sweat, and tears. That was not an easy thing to do. Farmers don't move. They don't leave. But at the age of 57, I packed up my stuff in a stock trailer and moved south. Uh, the new farm, it's another sharp learning curve. We've got a small orchard on the farm. We've got some apple trees, plum trees, um, apricots, peaches, pears, figs, persimmons, nuts. We got greenhouse, hoop house, huge garden area, seven ponds. You know, for a river rat flatlander moving to the Flint Hills to an orchard. <laughs> was a whole new learning curve that I, that I wasn't quite ready for probably. What's your favorite fruit to grow so far? Well, you probably just took us down our next rabbit hole because we have now been here two years. Uh, we have picked six peaches. Okay. We've had late freezes, polar vortexes. We did harvest some apples last year and a few plums, but by and large, we've had zero production of pears, apricots, and peaches. Um, very minor production of figs and persimmons. Uh, we've had one variety of plums that still hasn't produced in two years. Uh, you know, I, I don't care whether you, we can argue all day about man-made or not, but climate change is real. It is here. It's not coming. It's here now. And it is affecting the way we're growing food. 100%. Which way do you think the climate's changing? You know, I thought because I... I bought into climate change before most of my neighbors and friends did that I, I could beat it. I could maybe at least get ahead of it and, and compete. Uh, so 10 years ago, I kind of started looking at Texas and Oklahoma. You know, I, I thought, you know, it kept getting called global warming. So, you know, as we desertify and become warmer, I need to look at more crops like grain sorghum as, as a cash cropper or. What's it like hotter and drier from me? Exactly, exactly. What's, what's a longer growing season look like with warmer daytime temperatures, less rainfall? You know, that was another good thing about bringing in the sheep. They're much more drought resilient, drought hardy than cows are. Uh, you know, I, I was 
kind of breaking my arm, patting myself on the back for being on the front side of this. But what climate change is for me is wild temperature swings that, you know, late we're, we're, going from Texas, we're going from Texas to North Dakota in 36 hours. And so, you know, do I need to be buying apple trees and vegetables that can handle Texas or North Dakota? What I think we need is some that can handle both. And that's, that's pretty diff difficult to find. Uh, yeah, late freezes, rainfall events. You know, we, we talked about the rainfall probably before we started, maybe, you know, we've, we've recorded zero precipitation in January, three tenths in December, uh, zero in November. And the next time it rains, you know, we may get five or 10 inches. Uh, this, this is kind of our new normal. Uh, it, it's feast or famine, literally, with, with temperatures, with wind, with precipitation. And we've got to find a way to grow food in this. I mean, you've been farming for 40 years. And as a farmer, you have to be an observer of the weather. I was, you know, I, I've been back around for about 15 years. I remember in late 2006, or maybe it was seven, went to a meeting and I got to hear a young man from the National Weather Service office down in Norman. And he said, I mean, he basically said what we've been talking about. Climate change is real. Don't, we don't need to argue if it's man-made or not. We're having an effect. The climate is changing. Those two things are facts. Cannot be argued with. But what uh, I think this young man's name was Andrew. What I remember him saying was the extremes will get more extreme. As the climate can, as the climate enters a period of change, the extremes will get more extreme. We're not going to say it's warming anymore. We're just going to say it's changing. We don't know if it's going to get hotter, drier, cooler, or wetter, or what combination it's going to be. But we do know that in the near term, the extremes are going to get more extreme and things are going to change. And, and there's going to be a lot of, of disruption in the system before it settles down to another relatively long period of quiet climate. And I think that climate period, you know, 70, 80 years that we may kind of have a stable climate with, you know, reasonably, reasonably predictable drought cycle. And then we get into a situation like we're in now, where I think it's like a compound of the natural climate shift plus man-made climate effects are coming to a head and they're driving the climate to change much, much more rapid than it ever has. And I think the planet is struggling to find the balance to bring herself in, back into balance. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, I, I'm going to butcher this because I'm not sure the proper pronunciation, but what did we have in mid-December? Is that Dureco or Derecho, you know, that we had on December 16th? I, I, in, an inland hurricane. hurricane. Yeah. Yep. I, we had one of those in the, in the early 80s. I, I remember that because I had just gotten married and we had just bought a new car that was pretty well destroyed in it. Uh, didn't, I don't remember another one. We had one in 2009. Uh, we had one a year and a half ago. You know, we, we've now had three of them in, in 10 years. Uh, we've pretty much had three of them this year or three of them in the last yeah. year here. You've got um, bomb cyclones. I, we never knew what those was. And Nebraska has two of them in, in seven weeks, uh, you know, a year and a half ago or two years ago. And, you know, I think we're looking at, at scaling up hurricanes and tornadoes. I don't think F5s are going to be big enough in the coming months to measure how big the tornadoes are. And we, we're already seeing hurricanes at 
you know, each one's bigger than the last. And I, I think things like this are just going to continue to get worse. And, you know, the, the wild temperature swings has, has been the real issue for us. And I think, you know, what, what we've been talking about for the last hour is soil health. If, if my rainfall events are going to be five or 10 inches at a time, I damn sure better have some way to capture that. Uh, and, and my prior system couldn't come close. I don't know if I could catch six inches an hour, but I'd damn sure like to try. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got some good uh, pastures that could probably catch that. I think you'd be surprised. I, in 2014 or 15, um, NRCS did some work on, on my old farm, and we actually went out and measured my, some of my worst soils, some of my higher clay soils, and we were at six and a half inches an hour infiltration then, which was six inches an hour higher than we were 14 years prior. I was going to say, that's after a lot of cover cropping and, and some livestock yep. integration and no-till. Yep. So I, I, I think we can get there, but yeah, we, we've got to change some of our habits and uh, it, it's doable. Um, you're, you're certainly doing the work. You know, you're, you're obviously your environment, your soil is, is different than mine. I, you know, I don't know what you could have done historically 100 or 200 years ago. So we, we you know, comparing my my operation to yours is like comparing apples to oranges right we're we're a lot sandier soil out here um as far as what it was 120 years ago i'd say we're pretty close to that you know i i think that the historic potential for you know forage production and and rainfall infiltration i think i'm pretty close to the maximum on the ranch it's just it's just utilizing what I know how to grow and increasing stock density to utilize the forage when it's at its peak. Yep. So, man, we've been going for an hour and a half. We've talked about all the stuff you screwed up. And that's one of the, one of the questions <laughs> I usually like to ask right now, like what's the worst thing you screwed up and what did it teach you? Boy, I don't know. You know, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, some of them were, were devastating, but I, I've always been of the belief and I've always, it's something I've always pounded into my kids is never be afraid to fail because I, I think mistakes are, are learning opportunities. So if you can learn from them, then that kind of lessens the blow. But boy, some of my biggest mistakes, uh, probably, you know, not asking why soon enough, putting putting way too much faith and confidence in a team that I had that, that I thought had my best interests in, in the eighties. Um, that, that, those are a couple of big mistakes that really, that really come back to haunt me, you know, obviously big time. Uh, then the other biggest mistake would have been, you know, after 2013, 14, when, you know, I'm going through the meltdown financially you know, the whole farm was not walking away soon enough. I, I should have declared bankruptcy, gathered up, you know, cut my losses, got out and started over. But because I didn't, I suffered financially. My family suffered financially. Uh, I became depressed. I buried all that. And, you know, I fought a losing battle for another five years that 10 or 20 years off of my life that, you know, I, I had no business fighting. I, I should have walked away sooner, but farmers, 
you know, our, our best attribute is supposed to be our pride, but it's also our worst. And we, we've got to learn to keep that in check a little better. I think we all get hung up on what the, what we feel like the neighbors think of us or what we think the community thinks of us. Yep. And really at the end of the day, I don't think anybody cares. Like there, there's nobody yeah. said there's nobody laying awake at night in medicine lodge worrying about what I'm doing out here. There ain't anybody, you know, sitting around the bar talking crap about my cows or my finances. That's all up here. That's all in our heads. And we do it to ourselves. I do it to myself. Um, yep. So what, had, did you find any resources to help you through any of that? Resources to help me through the, the mental part? Or, yes. Or what? Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mental part. No, I, I, I hid my depression. I denied it. Uh, well, for, first of all, I didn't realize it, you know. I, it's not like you wake up one morning and look in the mirror and there's depression or something like that written across your forehead. And you just right. say, Oh, well, I, I you know, I, I, I caught a cold yesterday and I caught depression today and I better take a pill for that. You know, uh, I, I don't even know when I realized that my, my mental health was at risk, it, it, but it took several years. Uh, and then it took a couple of years after that of, of me, admitting it to myself and then more time after that to admit it to somebody else because you know the perception of of mental illness is there's something wrong with that person you know they they need to be locked up in a home and and, and nobody's certainly going to rent ground or or do business with somebody that's depressed because that that's not that's not right so God forbid anybody in town see your pickup parked at the therapist's office. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I did go through some therapy when I got divorced, but I, I, yeah, I, I parked in the back because I didn't want anybody to see my, my pickup parked there. And it, it did a lot of good to help me deal with, with, I mean, everybody goes through depression in their life. There's, there's multiple things that, you know, ways of being depressed and, and things like, going through a divorce or when, when, when my brother died, those, those are depressions that, that come and go. Hopefully they're, they're usually shorter lived. If, if you deal with them properly, if, if not, they can grow into something even worse. Uh, but yeah, it's just something you don't want to admit in public. It's, it's my God, there's something wrong with you, but we don't realize that it's a disease just like cancer or diabetes that, you know, and, and, especially in farming when, you know, when suicide rates are going through the roof, we better find a way to address this because we're the greatest people on the planet. We need, I think we need to keep some of us around. So we, we better find a way. But once I did, you know, stupidly, not stupidly, you know, Lynette and I, by this time we're changing our diets and from what we were reading and hearing is, you know, I'd quit using the chemicals. We knew the chemicals had, they played into my depression and, and my, you know, my mental health weaknesses. And we thought that just by getting away from the chemicals and eating a cleaner diet and more nutrition and, and getting the probiotics and prebiotics into me that we could probably cure it like that. And then we, we thought about, well, when we get rid of the farm and the stress and we move to this new farm and you know, some of that debt is removed, that'll cure it. We were wrong. 
you know, I, I, I still got the chemicals in me. I've not detoxed. Uh, we've got new stresses on the farm and this will be really tough, Brian, because we're, we're all these, and you're not old, but all these old white guys that are farmers today and changing our diets is bad enough. Uh, taking sugar out of our diet is difficult enough. Cutting back on alcohol or eliminating it is difficult enough. But telling a farmer to start meditating, to go sit out on the hill barefooted in the pasture and turn off the cell phone and, and become at one with nature for a few minutes a day ain't what a farmer wants to hear. You had but, me until turn off the cell phone. That's, that's yeah. my hardest thing is, is unplugging yep. and putting away the stupid screens. Yep. But, in, but until we start doing that, and until we start letting our emotions out and understanding it's okay to cry and it's, it's okay to go sit barefooted in the pasture and not do anything for five minutes, except listen to the crickets and the cows and not think about any of that stuff. That that's, that's a whole new level of unlearning that I don't know how to do yet, but I'm trying. It's okay to see a therapist and you can park in the front. It, it's okay to see a therapist and you can park in the front and, I think the big thing is that I, I don't have anything against getting on some prescriptions maybe, but that's not the answer. We've got to find a way to fix ourselves through getting at one with nature, getting some therapy, uh, learning how to deal with our emotions and opening up to our inner circle. It's, and it's difficult. It's difficult because some of us lead lives of semi-isolation because of distance from town distance from neighbors, you know, sometimes I feel like I'd rather live in an area where neighbors were a little bit closer, but then again, there's a lot of times I'm fortunate that I can, I can go out to the ranch and there isn't another soul that I can see here, even with a pair of binoculars. That's really nice. And whether you're going to talk to a therapist or your significant other, or a friend, I think that that's, that's one thing that can help everybody is just, if you're having trouble, if you're feeling down, go talk to somebody. Nobody's going to make fun of you. Quit yeah. being self-conscious about what everybody in town thinks of you because no one really cares. Yeah. You know, they're well, more likely, to be honest, you know, go ahead. To be honest, let's take a really close look at our urban cousins think they don't have some issues of their own that they're covering up as well uh gosh i i don't know i wouldn't know i don't live in town but sure i mean they have to just just the stress of driving through town like to go to a doctor's appointment and when i say town i'm not talking about medicine lodge like wichita <laughs> like going to medicine lodge is not stressful it's like not any more stressful sometimes than going to check the mailbox but wichita traffic these days we plan our trips <laughs> yep. just because it's, it is yep. stressful and doing it every day, you know, you get used to that stress, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. Just like, yep. And you know, our, our lives are just stress has become such a part of our everyday life. Farmers, you know, worrying about when the next payment or how the next payment is going to be made. And, and, and let's face it, they, they, they work all night and miss their kids' games and dance recitals and, 
and the neighborhood picnics and but the pe people in town is the same way you, you spend all day in traffic and you miss your kids's games and you work late and so you can afford that third car and fourth tv and a house that you don't need and we we just build our lives around this consumeristic bullshit that leads to stress which leads to inflammation which just adds to the glyphosate and all the stuff wrong in our gut and here we are pretty soon we're living in a world wearing masks and having to having to lock down on purpose because we're not smart enough to do it on our own to to quit the rat race every once in a while and just spend some time at home with the family because we're afraid of a new strain of bad cold So we, you know, we, we've got to find a way to get the stress out of our life. And, and to me, that's, that's what this whole conversation has been about for an hour and a half or however long we've been into it now is, you know, we've got to downsize farms. We've got to find a way to make them more profitable, less stressful, more farmers on the land, more schools in the rural communities, smaller cities, happier farmers. It, it's got to be the end goal or we're not going to be here to, to do another podcast in a few years. That's almost a scary thought. Well, I hope we are here in a few years, come back and do one. I do too, but at the, at the rate we're going today, I, it probably won't happen. Oh, we can't end on that. We got to end on a high note. <laughs> When's your next field school? Uh, I wish I could announce we, we're not going to know till about the first or second week of february we're, we're waiting on it we got a call with a speaker here on the third because of covid uh, it's probably going to be in september again because we get the option of being outside in september in kansas the weather is usually pretty nice uh so probably going to be in september one more year uh i i will say that we are going to is since we're starting a new decade it's probably going to take a completely new look for those that have been here before, it's, it's going to be completely different than what they've been through. You know, we're seeing some things in education and I, I've, I've, I've got some things up my sleeve, but I think it's time we revamp education in rural America. And, and so field school 11 is going to take on a new look. And I think it's going to be where we're, we're, our big goal is instead of just educating farmers and, and attendees, we want to empower them. Awesome. So where, where could we, where would a person go? Where would a person be able to watch or sign up for updates to find out when the field school was, is, sure. is be. So you can go to our, our website, fullerfieldschool.com. You can follow me on Facebook at circle seven by fuller farms or Instagram uh, or LinkedIn at uh, Gail Fuller. I've also have a personal page on Facebook. There's lots of ways of finding me. At the website, you can you can sign up and get on our mailing list. I can tell you we're already we are already half full for 2000 for 2022, and we haven't even announced dates or speakers yet. Will you save me a spot? I I will save you a spot, my friend. I'll save you two spots because this is about team, not about one person. Ah, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. You're you're kind of making me feel bad because you've done ten of these and I haven't made it over to a single one yet. Yeah, your dad. Your dad's been to a, a couple. Um, but yeah, we we haven't seen your smiling face there yet. Looking forward to that. 
Well, I'll have to bring a mobile recorder. Maybe we can make some good content while I'm there. Yep. And I think, uh, you know, you mentioned our, our mutual friend, Matt Klepper. He, there, there's a chance that he and his family will be here entertaining us during timeouts. Even if he's not entertaining, I'm sure he'll be there. And that'll, that'll be a good <laughs> legendary time. Yeah. He, he, he is entertaining with or without the guitar. Let's put it that way. Oh, I've, I've done a couple podcasts with him. He is just, he is a very, very interesting guy to talk to. I really enjoy every, every second that I get to talk to Matt Clapper. Yep. It, it's never boring with him. No doubt. Okay. Well, we, we know how to find you. Know when the field school is. Have we forgot that I forget to ask you anything that you need to talk about today? I don't think so. I mean, we, we covered a, a broad range. We didn't really cover regrowing rural communities and regenerative ag, but there's always a part two. Yes, sir, there is. Well, Gail, I don't want to take up any more of your day. I really appreciate the time you've given me and uh, appreciate I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been, been an honor, been a lot of fun. It has been a lot of fun. And you have enjoy the rest of your day. And gang, enjoy the rest of your week. And... We'll be back next Monday.